Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Doomer Optimism podcast. Um, I am hosting solo today, and I have two guests, John Mulrow and Bill Reese. Um, Bill is super well-known in environmental, you know, thinking circles. Um, John is an up-and-comer, um, but they both have a have a um, a sort of tech or energy skepticism, um, at least about what our um our the current assumptions about the business as usual energy consumption are um the consensus view among most environmentalists are so i thought we would have a conversation kind of lay their theory out about you know sort of the doom um where we're at and then maybe make a little move toward the optimism um what we can do about it how we should be thinking about you know where our 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 movements of agency are within the doom um, so I will have them introduce themselves. Bill, you can go first, and then John, um, and then we'll get into it. Welcome. Well, thank you, Ashley. As Ashley said, I'm Bill Rees. I'm actually a retired professor of ecological economics and human ecology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, in Canada. So I spent most of my academic career researching the implications of global change for the longevity of human civilization. And along the way, along with my graduate students, we developed something called ecological footprint analysis. And of course, it's generated a number of spin-offs, including material footprint analysis, the carbon footprint, water footprints, and so on. So I think we can claim that it's had a major effect on the conversation, if not on the actual way in which humans operate <laughs> in the earth. So that's my background, ecology and ecological economics. John? All right. Thanks uh, for having me on, Ashley, and always be always cool to be on with Bill Reese too. Because um, what you're what what you're getting with me is someone who who studied those uh, footprint methods. Um, and my just really quick, what I currently am is a assistant professor of environmental and ecological engineering at Purdue University. Um, where I teach life cycle assessment as well as base, basic industrial impact footprint measurement techniques to the crop of students that are being trained for positions like sustainability manager and chief sustainability officer and things like that. So those, those are real jobs now, right? That we have methods that people like Bill have developed uh, for and we train them in doing those things. But my background, my my undergraduate degree is in environmental science. And then I worked in the solid waste industry for eight years after college. Um, it, I did a stint at the World Watch Institute in there in 2010 in DC doing climate advocacy. And we wrote about degrowth and ecological footprinting at that time. Um, but in the industry, I was just continually skeptical for many different reasons, uh, many of them based in just straight observation and scientific reasoning, uh, skeptical of things like zero waste, circular economy, recycling as we know it in North America, that those would actually deliver whole reductions in environmental impacts. I went back to do my PhD specifically. I moved back home to Chicago, started a PhD, specifically to investigate those questions. So I did my PhD in civil engineering, teach environmental engineering now, but my research is really on energy infrastructure and how those solutions we call sustainable actually get deployed in the real world. Mm 
Okay, so let's start like in the biggest, most zoomed out, like historical context. Um, you all had a um, a really good webinar that I watched um, the other day where you sort of laid out the case of, you know, where we are at in human history, um, how different, how like anomalous it really is relative to most of human history. Um, and, you know, maybe we could just start to to lay out the foundational assumptions that Im influence your skepticism for the narrative that, you know, we can continue with business as usual forever. Um, maybe Bill can take that one to start. Well, <clears throat> well, <laughs> human beings have been around for different estimates, but let's say 250,000 years anatomically modern humans. And during most of that time, um, populations, local populations of people were held in check by a, a balancing act between what is called negative feedback, resource shortages, food shortages, competition, and so on, and the inherent capacity of people to expand exponentially. So for 250,000 years, there was really no detectable growth in human populations. Uh, we did spread over the planet in the last 50,000 years, we've occupied the entire earth. But basically, it took uh, almost that entire period to reach our first billion in about 1810 or thereabouts. So since 1810, we've expanded to 8 billion. So there's been an eightfold increase uh, in the numbers of people on the planet in just 200 years, which is 1 250th of the amount of time it took to reach the first billion. Uh, so this is an entirely unprecedented uh, period. It's in, therefore completely anomalous. Mm -hmm. We take this period of growth to be the norm. So every economist, every technical optimist assumes we can maintain 2 and 3% growth at infinitum uh, because that's the norm. But only 10 generations of human beings have experienced growth. And so what we take to be the norm is the single most anomalous period in history. And it's happening on a finite planet that hasn't gotten any bigger. Mm -hmm. So just to put a number on this, uh, up until about 200 years ago, human beings used uh, something on the order of 700 million tons of uh, materials. Okay, so we're going to use that. We've used that much again since then. And in the next doubling, we'll use another 700 million tons of materials. So it simply can't continue to happen on this uh, at this rate on a finite planet. 700 million tons of metals since you know the beginning of civilization and then another 700 million tons uh, coming up in the next 40 years, not a chance. It's not going to happen on this planet without destroying the life support systems. And And what are some of the other like biophysical limits that we're actually reaching because <clears throat> if we're trying to you know okay I'm a sociologist not an ecologist so I'm going to put this in very simplistic terms but some some use of nature gets recycled back into nature into some in some cyclical systems other use is extractive or linear um, and something like fossil fuels is extractive and just goes you know from a usable source out into the atmosphere um this is my very simplistic understanding. What other um, biophysical limits are we potentially facing um, that can't really be solved by some sort of transition towards tech? Maybe John can 
take a stab at this one. <laughs> are are you are you both um peak oil, you know, theorists or or is there something more complicated than peak oil that you're working under theory wise? Well, Bill, uh, Bill's the inventor of many of the met metrics we use to define these biophysical limits. But I will I'll jump right in on um, on this question of energy transition, and then I'll touch on peak oil. But in a sense, uh, you can think of uh, and and the ecological footprint method does this. So apologies if, if I'm getting it wrong, Bill. But you can kind of think of the Earth. In, as a single homogeneous unit, you could think of a unit just called Earth that we could use that would just represent the renewable capacity of the one planet that we have. Because it is fine, the finiteness of the Earth is too easy to explain. You learn it in like third grade science, right? <laughs> we have a sun that shines on us. We've got a we've got one planet with a finite stock of materials. That sun sends us this daily stock of energy, this daily flow of energy that the earth has uh, been trained to utilize in a very kind of self-balancing uh, way. And when we do anything, when you, when we dig a hole, build a house, drive a car, think a thought, have a dream, <laughs> you use some of that energy, no doubt about it. And it, you take that energy from the system that was trained to have this uh, homeostasis that gave us the, the Holocene, right? So um, you don't even need that many, in my view, if you just understand that, uh, you don't need too many other metrics to define the finiteness of the planet, right? We, we don't necessarily have to, we, we, in fact, one of the common tools of distracting people from the finiteness of the planet is to invent alternative metrics that shift mm. uh, shift impacts outside the boundary of analysis. So carbon emissions is a great one. We can electrify vehicles. An electric vehicle on the road does not emit carbon emissions except for the particulate matter that comes off the tires, you know, slowly wearing down on the road. And if you draw the system boundary around the electric vehicle, you will get a, a metric that is zero carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. You've left out the life cycle. You've also left out anything related to metals except for the smelting process. Um, things like uh, water acidification and just straight up material resource extraction um, or extrigy use is kind of the, the technical term for the drawdown of the potential of those materials. Uh, so that's my bit about um, kind of the, the limits. There's no doubt about it. We're living on a limited planet. You don't need to know too much more other than that we have one sun and one finite set of materials that we use. The other thing is um, I'm not a, uh, I don't like peak oil as a center of focus because it focuses on a stock of materials available rather than the outcomes of using that material. Mm -hmm. We will run out of atmospheric space far far before we run out of actual physical oil to use. Mm. So we will run out of the biophysical regenerative capacity of the earth way before we run out of fossil fuels. The stock of available fossil fuels is not going to force some limiting, self-limiting uh, value in humans. We have to talk about the eco ecological situation in order to cultivate that self-limiting value. Yeah. So talking about peak anything is a distraction. I get it, okay. Anything you want to add to that, Bill? 
Yeah, I do. I think John's very nicely covered the, the physical and resource side of things, at least the material side of it. But think of the biological side of the same issue. There's a finite amount of photosynthesis moving through the ecosphere every year. Plants use most of it. And the residual is left over and has to support the entire population of animal life on Earth. Now, that means humans are competing with every other species of non-plant on the planet for the net primary production of green plants. But as the human enterprise has grown, especially in the last 200 years, with that eightfold increase in human numbers, we have become by far the dominant species on Earth. So that if you go back to agricultural or pre-agricultural times, humans were less than 1% of mammalian biomass, the mm. weight of animals, uh, mammals on Earth. Uh, today, we're something like 34%. But our domestic mammals, the, the animals we raise for food and milk and so on, comprise another 62 or 3%. So humans plus domestic animals comprise now 97% or thereabouts of mammalian biomass on the mm. earth. We've simply displaced all the others. Wild mammals on planet earth today occupy three to 4% of the biomass on the planet uh, of, of mammals. So when humans expand, what we take from the global flow of energy is simply irreversibly unavailable mm. to non-human species. It's what I call competitive displacement. Humans, because of our technological superiority, are vastly superior competitors in appropriating the energy flows through the ecosphere. So we simply displace other uh, animal life. Mm. Same with birds. Something like 70, 75% of the biomass of bird life on planet Earth now is chickens, turkeys, and other domestic fowl. Uh, our use of the sea, capturing fish, is eliminating seabird populations and marine mammal populations who compete with us for the fish that we take from the sea. So the expansion of the human enterprise inevitably and irreversibly reduces the quantity of energy flow available to other species. And this is really important for one final reason. I know I'm going on here, but you will often hear a politician say, there's no inherent conflict between the expansion of the economy and the environment. Uh, this is simple ignorance. There is an absolute 100% contradiction between the expansion of the human enterprise and the rest of non-human life on Earth. And again, it's precisely for the reason that John mentioned. There's a fixed, in fact, one could even argue perhaps diminishing flow of uh, energy through the system from natural sources. The more we take, the less is available for non-human life. And uh, we've become... Actually, the, the single largest, this is really important, I have to say, the major uh, herbivore on Earth, we're the largest predator or carnivore on Earth. So we have this dual role because of our extreme adaptability and capacity to eat almost anything. So we have become, in every ecosystem, the major consumer organism. Meanwhile, we operate out of a mental model generated by mainstream economists and techno-optimists that the economy can dematerialize, that we are decoupling from nature based on a very limited simplistic accounting system, which shows that we're using a little bit less energy per unit of GDP produced 
or we're reducing our carbon emissions per unit of GDP produced. But that's looking at the wrong things from the perspective of bioecology. While they're uh, frankly hallucinating about decoupling, the reality is that we've become and are continuing to grow into being the single largest factor in every single ecosystem on planet Earth. Complete disjunction or discord between uh, the reality and the way we think. And the way we think, of course, rationalizes us to continue growing. But if we can decouple, then we might as well just keep growing. But we're not uh, decoupling. Yeah, not I, I want to dig into the actual decoupling or dematerializing thesis. Um, because I feel like part of what's going on here is a, almost like a kind of scientific imperialism. Like you get to measure whatever you want to measure and you want whatever outcome you want. You know, you pick you pick which parameters to measure to that and give you the outcome you want to be able to make a scientific case for something. Um, constantly, I have techno optimists um, arguing with me on Twitter about um, dematerialization. Um, can you tell me what they're measuring to come up with these conclusions and what they're leaving out of the measurement. And this is why I'm so glad you both are here because you actually have the receipts to back up. You know some of the the details here of of how things are being measured and you know what the what kind of smoke and mirrors are are being utilized to, to make a case. Um maybe John, you want to take a stab at it first? Well I'll I'll bring the I'll mention the first one that comes to mind, uh, just a very prominent trick, uh counting trick that's occurring right now, and that is the shift to cyber infrastructure. So uh, when you move a process from a physical process, like say a paperwork process to a digital process, like sending emails, right? We all remember the um, wait, think before you print little, remember in the 2000s when we put, think about the environment before you print this email, as if we were all saving the planet by converting to email and then every company is has this green logo every bank statement you get has still has a green leaf at the bottom that says go green and go paperless well you're you're saving them money on materials first of all um and yeah you're not getting the junk mail and you feel less bad about throwing it away and it, which is clearly in excess but the economy how does the economy respond to that efficiency gain um it doesn't hold resource use level and then give the savings back to the environment. No, the companies uh, move the communications onto a very efficient uh, mode, which is the digital mode, right? All it takes is a few electrons to send information. But um, the, the result is just a massive increase in, in quantity of information and communications. And that's the, called the Jevons paradox, right? I was just going to bring up, yeah, maybe we, we should actually define the Jevons paradox or describe it, um, because that's a really important assumption, I think, for, for this conversation. Yeah, I'll, I can define it real quick since I'm used to talking about it in class. And uh, when I asked just as a, a pointer, uh, as a marker, um, I have, I get juniors, I teach juniors and I teach grad students at Purdue, they're environmental and ecological engineers. Most of them are fired up about climate change and care about the environment. So I always ask both groups on day one, have you heard of the Jevons paradox? And I get like 10% response. And I've been talking about this for like 10 years. It's all I think about when I read environmental statistics and claims of environmental gain, right? So, but anyways, the Jevons paradox is named after Stanley Jev Jevons 
who was a famous economist in um, the UK in the 18, uh, second half of the 18, uh, 19th century. Uh, and he wrote a book called The Coal Question. He was hired by the UK government to study the coal industry. Um, and in 1865, he published his treatise called The Coal Question uh, that basically told the story of the coal industry in the UK and looked, uh, looked ahead to the future. And he, he basically said, we're gonna run out of coal uh, because we're accelerating extraction and use of coal via efficiency gain in the steam engine. So as the steam engine gets more efficient, uh, the we, we extract more coal because it makes it easier per unit of coal to extract. And then he has one chapter. He never uses the term paradox, but he has one chapter. And I'll pull the quote here because I have it. Um, where he addresses this idea that if we just funded better steam engines, we could extend the life of coal in Britain. And he says, it is wholly a confusion of ideas to suppose that the economical use of fuel is equivalent to a diminished consumption. The very contrary is the truth. And that's the statement, that's the Jevons paradox uh, right there. So I'm happy to share the link because I, I have students read this original chapter in class uh, because it reads like you could imagine the UK, you could imagine all this funding of green steam engines. You could like literally copy paste the sustainability technology movement and, and advertising rhetoric from today and put it on uh, the British coal industry. And of course, Jevons turned out to be right, not the people promising a long life for British coal. Uh, due to more efficient engines, and that's the paradox. So that's a, that's one of the, there's there's the cyber movement, and then there's the efficiency movement, making things disappear, in making impact disappear into per unit ratios. Because if you say using less fuel per mile, it sounds great, but if you don't multiply by the total number of miles traveled, you didn't actually get an ecological metric. So we hide things in per unit ratios, and we've been hiding things a lot lately in the cyber world because it's very diffuse and hard to hard for us to imagine its physicality. Um, I wanna toss it to Bill to keep talking about dematerialization, but I just remember I had a really aha moment once Richard York came out with a paper, I think it was like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago that there was, there has never been an energy transition, only an addition. So every time we invent some other form of energy, it just keeps adding to the total energy we're using. Um, that really changed my whole, trajectory and thinking about this. Um, so yeah, Bill, let's continue on with the with the problems with the dematerialization thesis. Well, John, I think has covered it really well. Basically, when we get more efficient, which is really what we're talking about here, it reduces prices and companies that have lower prices make bigger sales. Uh, they can afford to pay their employees more. So this radiate, radiates through the economy. The more efficient we get, the more companies can afford to pay, the more we produce. And what you have is a situation of more money chasing cheaper goods and services. So total consumption goes up. So if it were true that efficiency would save resources, then we should be in a tremendous position right now because we've gone through the last half century, which is a period of unrivaled increases inefficiency in just about every dimension of the economy. And yet that's a period in which uh, material use has doubled and doubled again. 
So as I say, the cheaper things get, the more people buy them and the more uh, units are sold in the marketplace, the more demand there is on resources. Just take something like petroleum. We have used, now people don't believe this, but it's very easy to show, since 1990, that's just 30 odd years ago, one half of all the fossil fuels ever used by human beings in just the last 50 years. 30 years, what am I saying? I was born in 1943. 97% of all the fossil fuels ever used have been used in my lifetime. Now, if you extrapolate that kind of energy, just expand energy uh, away from fossil fuels, that means with the next doubling of the economy, we will use more energy than has been used in the previous period since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution on a planet that is already in a state of overshoot. And I wanna come back to that point in a moment because limits are real and you don't know they're there until you hit them. And we have uh, gotten very dangerously to the point where we cannot withdraw from limits we've already surpassed. Um, John, um, you brought up this example. Let me know if you're ready to talk about it um, in your presentation um, for this other webinar, this billiard ball example. Um, do you have the quote? I'm going to find the quote and we're going to come back to it, but okay. I, I will, and I'll give you the quote because it's so good, but I'll, okay. I can summarize it right now because I talk about this um, and this relates to this idea of shifting metrics and frames so that you can tell the story you want to tell. But um, in, when I used to, as a, as a PhD student at University of Illinois, Chicago, I taught an environmental chemistry class um, in the school of public health and so and i love history at the same time so like we, when we got to the section on plastics i dug into the history of plastics and found that the uh the plastics industry was funded as kind of this startup uh you know startup craze in the late 1800s post-civil war united states the price of imported goods skyrocketed, which stimulated innovation um, in replacing the most expensive goods, especially things like whalebone and ivory for making thing, making combs and clothing accessories. Uh, and ivory was also famous as being used for piano keys and billiard balls, but the piano keys just require like a little a uh, sheath of ivory over a wooden key, but the billiard ball was a legitimate whole sphere of ivory from an elephant tusk. And so um, the first big funding competition that went out there was for an alternative to the billiard ball. And people that were working on what was called gun cotton at the time, which was a nitrogen-based uh, polymer that had some explosive qualities, found that if you treated it a certain way, it hardened into a a, a very kind of ceramic-like or ivory-like substance. Um, and so the first makers of plastic were using bio-based materials. We're using like celluloid from wood starch and cotton starch to make plastics. But as soon as kerosene, uh, you know, we struck oil in what, the 1850s was the famous Drake uh, discovery in Pennsylvania. And so by the time 1900 came along, 
the oil industry was looking for places to offload their polymers, right? Their, hyd their hydrocarbons and plastics was sitting, the plastics industry was just waiting for that to show up. And I see it as similar where we, and I'm going to find the quote because there's so many claims of saving animals like whales and turtles and elephants from the onset of the use of petroleum products like kerosene and plastic. Um, and I'm going to pull up that quote here in a second, but I think we're just, like I said, we're copy pasting a lot of the marketing language using it today with some new vocabulary like sustainability and circular economy. But the fundamental premise of the claims, the way they're structured is pretty much the same mm -hmm. uh, um, Bill, because we have to fuel a growing economy. Yep. Um, Bill, maybe it would be useful at this point to just lay out the, the concept overshoot um, what, you know, what is it, um, what does it mean? And, you know, what's the, what's the basis for it? Okay. Basically overshoot implies uh, that human beings, the 8 billion of us now are using even self-producing or renewable resources faster than they can regenerate. Okay. So fisheries are collapsing. We, we've destroyed a third of the arable land and, and soil on earth and so on and so forth. Uh, we're depleting the forests, et cetera. We're also dumping wastes vastly in excess of the capacity of natural ecosystems to absorb and assimilate those wastes. Climate change is a waste management problem. People don't really understand, but carbon dioxide is the single largest waste product by weight of industrial economies. Mm. So we simply exceeded by a vast margin the capacity of, of forests and other uh, terrestrial and, and marine ecosystems to assimilate the carbon we're emitting in, into the atmosphere. Yep. And of course, it's accumulating. So it's just one example of a pollution problem resulting from human overuse of assets. Now, the bottom line is this. We are literally consuming and uh, toxifying the biophysical basis of our own existence. This is a fatal condition. Mm. Overshoot cannot continue indefinitely. Mm -hmm. And that's the crunch that people simply don't want to face. Because for example, the green energy transition will not only not solve climate change for a number of reasons we might get into, but it will exacerbate overshoot. It's simply business as usual by alternative means. Mm -hmm. And it's business as usual, the continued growth of the economy, and therefore the continued growth in the rate at which the humans are, are moving material, we call it economic uh, throughput through the system. Mm -hmm. We're simply converting the living earth into humanity and our cultural artifacts. Mm -hmm. And for proof of that, a recent paper shows that the total mass, just the weight of human stuff now exceeds the total biomass on planet earth and it's literally a conversion process where we convert the earth into humanness mm -hmm. but of course in the process we're undermining the biophysical systems that make life possible mm -hmm. the most obvious is the climate system but it's by no means the only one it's simply one of many symptoms co-symptoms of this massive problem of overshoot mm -hmm. if you don't address overshoot directly you can't solve the problem so face, they're trying to fix climate, trying to fix biomass or, or biodiversity loss, uh, ocean acidification as isolated incidents or isolated problems will not work. Mm -hmm. The only way to fix overshoot is through massive reductions 
and the amount of energy and material consumption. Mm-hmm. And that is why we avoid that question altogether. <laughs> we are unwilling to face the facts yep. that that's the solution. So well, once, John has made the point. We, we make up all kinds of little sideshows that, that, uh, that look at one or two you know, perverse factors associated with some of these trends and pretend that's the whole issue. You know, I think- I love kind that of like term, slideshow. Side we're kind of like, it feels like a lot of people are in the bargaining stage of grief, fundamentally. You know, like maybe if we just come up with X, Y, or Z thing, then we'll be able to get ourselves out of this. Um, John, did you want to add something? Yeah, because Bill was saying, when you think about your, actually the way you kicked off the podcast, which was to say that we're, uh, the dominant narrative is that we can continue business as usual. And I actually think the dominant narrative is that the dominant narrative now, thanks to people like Naomi Klein and Bill McKibben, who've certainly been great warriors for the environment. But the narrative that has come out of that is that we can't continue business as usual, but the alternative business as usual defined as a fossil fuel-based economy. Mm-hmm. But the alternative is still a growth-based economy mm-hmm. by different extractive means. They don't right. say it that way. Yep. Um, and it's got some environmental justice and social equity mixed in there, which we have to be able to preserve those values. So I think we've done a great job preserving some values. Maybe this is the optimism you were looking for. We've done a great job bringing out and cultivating some values that we really need for true sustainability. We have yet to break the bad news that the economy can't grow. Well, and you know people, what? I think adults are ready for that message if you say it right. Yeah. And, it, and it's still pointed towards true environmental sustainability. Well, I, I'll, we should, we're going to get into the optimism. I have one other doom question I really want to lay out, though, while I have you guys. But um, part of the optimism for me is that um, like living a truly sustainable life, low energy, low consumption life is spiritually very rewarding. <laughs> we have we, we live on, you know, nine acres. Um, we have all sorts of little projects. We've got chickens, a little garden, um, solar water heater, you know, little, little systems of redundancies and um, doing things with our hands, um, not, con- not finding our meaning in consumption. Like to me, uh, uh, it's all done voluntarily. It's very lovely. I mean, it's really lovely existence. People like, you know, walkable little cities. They like knowing their neighbors. They like, you know, being involved. In, it's There's a lot of, you know, quality of life aspects that we, that we're missing out on in that like high consumer, high, high speed. I mean, so much of it comes down to speed fundamentally. Like we just want everything to go as fast as possible. Um, And there's something really joyful about even something like the slow food movement, you know, like just take your time, you know, get, get food from nearby to where you live, eat it, eat, eat it fresh, eat it in season, pick it yourself, Um, sit with people. You know, there's something really actually deeply, you know, human about, um, that alternative that doesn't have to be like bad news or draconian and that's part of my um, my some of my concerns with the environmentalist movement is that they always highlight what we can't have as opposed to what the the potential joyful alternatives might look like that that are highly functioning as opposed to just don't do x y and z but instead what could you do that's like joyful and, and lovely but okay um i'll get off my soapbox for a second i want to just dig a little bit into the green energy transition myth because i think it's really important it constantly gets brought up um <clears throat> i think as like a bargaining tool for people who just can't really imagine what like an like a non-fossil fuel based economy and life would even look like um the thing that i always think about is even in the best case scenario 
if we're transitioning all of our energy to electricity based or battery based, even that would require massive overhauls of like everything about all of our infrastructure. So how like how does this even work, even in like the best possible techno optimist scenarios, let alone the climate change and like biodiversity issues of extracting all of those materials needed for batteries and metals and electric vehicles, et cetera. Um, I'm sure Bill has an answer to this. I'll let you go first. It's easy. You just assume all of that can happen. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, it's like that show, The Dropout. Did you see that on Hulu about the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos? No. The the blood, the single, the, the blood test with the single drop of blood. She was very good at at promoting the fact that if we believe in this concept enough, we'll get there. Right. She ended up in you know she ended up committing massive fraud. Um, it's like the same. but it's a it's a bargain where it's a gamble we're willing to take because that narrative has worked for techno giants in the past right if i work at it long enough like thomas edison's ten thousand recipes for a light bulb filament if i work at it long enough it will happen you see in some ways actually i i don't like to get drawn into this argument because i think it's irrelevant if Let's assume they're right. Let's assume they succeed in, in electrifying the economy. And by that, I mean um, create a, an electric equivalence of the current quantity of energy provided by fossil fuel. If we were to do so, it would be the end of the ecosphere. So what's the point? You see what I'm getting at? That's the overshoot question. What the whole energy transition assumes away is that there's a fundamental environmental problem which is called overshoot. Climate change is a big issue. I'm not trying to diminish the problems associated with climate change, but it is merely symptomatic of one element of overshoot. It's a waste management problem and we haven't dealt with it, but we can't deal with it in isolation from the main problem, the cause of it, I call it a meta problem. It's the cause of all the other problems. Overshoot is the cause of climate change, ocean acidification, deforestation, desertification, uh, soils and land deprivation, and so on and so forth. That is the issue, not climate change, not an energy transition, which will only exacerbate the situation. Why do I say that? Because you mentioned it a moment ago, the massive amount of infrastructure currently dedicated to fossil fuel has to be replaced by comparable infrastructure capable of using electricity. We have to create the way, means of generating all of that electricity, et cetera, et cetera. The massive, uh, by the way, all of that will be done using fossil fuel. So there are several studies showing that as we make the transition, there will be a big bump in uh, carbon dioxide emissions just because of the, the carbon commitment. And by the way, it's not even renewable. It's merely replenishable or replaceable. Mm. When Turbines in real world use seem to last about 15 years and have to be replaced or simply rebuilt. Solar panels may last 20 or 30 years, but then again, they have to be replaced and we have no real good means of recycling them. And by the way, recycling is a complete myth if you're doubling the scale of the economy. Even with 100% recycling, if you double the scale of everything, you still need twice as much stuff. And I'm, I've been making the case since we got on this little podcast that we've already in a state of overshoot. Mm -hmm. So any scheme that requires doubling the quantity of material throughput 
in the global economy is doomed to undercutting the biophysical basis for human existence, not to mention that of a countless of thousands and, and millions of other species. Okay. Well, I... One, uh, one example. Yes, yes, yes. Go right ahead. now, wind and solar are, are the everybody's energy of choice, right? That's where 90, up, up, uh, a couple of years ago, 94% of new investment was going into wind and solar. And some is now going into hydrogen, but that's a whole other mythic construct. Wind and solar supply in, in terms of final energy consumption, something like 2% of global energy supplies right now. That's after 30 years of rapid development. So people talk about the 15 and the 20 and 25% growth. Well, when you're starting from next to nothing, that rate of growth doesn't mean a whole lot in terms of the absolute quantities of materials provided to the planet. Fossil energy in, in 2021, which is the last year in which I looked at these things, still provided 82 or 83% of global primary energy. Non-hydro renewable energy, I gave us something like six and a half percent, and about eighty percent of that is wind and solar. So we're we're just nowhere near the, the point at which we can realistically expect those technologies to rise to the point of replacing the fossil fuels. To do so, let me. Uh, this may be a, a year out of date now, but if we wanted to replace just half of fossil fuels by twenty thirty five, which is the targets of the I guess the Paris Accord, okay, by 2030, it would require, listen to this, constructing 1.1 times the entire current global stock of wind turbines and solar panels every year for the next seven years. It's not going to happen, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. full stop. Okay, I, I could hear these people in my head already, the nuclear advocates. Somebody needs to just at least make a case for or against. Is nuclear good? Do we, you know, go, go, John? There, every single time we have this conversation, it's okay. First, we'll just electrify everything. No, oh wait, that's not going to work. Oh, but what about nuclear? So, so we have to at least address. Yeah, this is like a the, there's a predictable set yes. of um, reactions. There's a very predictable canon yeah. of questions that you go through, yeah. uh, and this is one of them. And actually. I got to go back and say that I, yeah, that the Theranos thing was a distraction because as Bill said, if we just get stuck on arguing technical feasibility, um, then we miss how the economy, we miss the dynamics of the situation. Um, so we get stuck saying, is solar, well, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. So we'll never run our, uh, our, our energy, our electrical system on renewables. Well, I can guarantee you there's an army of battery and electrical engineers waiting to tell you how you could feasibly capture and manage a constant flow of renewable energy by storing and resupplying to the grid. It's technically feasible and we can explain it with pretty, you know, with the technology of the day and the diagrams of the day. Low carbon emissions, high quantity, high density energy from nuclear energy is totally explainable um, given that the, the safety valves and checks are completely explainable. The, the waste 
management systems that will last for 100,000 years have been designed and are pretty well rigorously done. Does any of that mean that will they will help usher in environmental sustainability? No, because environmental sustainability requires what Bill was saying, an acknowledgement of overshoot, an acknowledgement of the finite limits of the planet, uh, and a, a fundamentally different understanding of what the economy is for and what well-being is. And one last point on this is uh, a, an analogy I tried to, I've also tried to make in class. And by the way, I have my plastics quote for you. But another analogy I tried to make in class, I'm not sure if this one's working as well, but a small thought experiment. Imagine an energy source that was completely benign and 100% free that we decided to distribute evenly to everyone on the planet. What would we get out of that? Well, we do something with energy, right? You, we do activities with it. It's what Alan Grah, the researcher Alan Grah in the book um, on uh, cultivating a post-carbon society calls digging activity, right? Yeah. There's energy that comes into society, but then there's products that come out and there's services that serve our daily lives. So. And in a, a cheap and abundant source of energy, especially given the lopsided management schemes of today, mm. uh, gives us nothing. I mean, it gives us more of the same at best yep. uh, and gives us faster ecological disaster at worst. Yeah, I mean, so that's my that's my nuclear I, response. Gonna, I'll throw it back to you, Bill. But a, a metaphor that helped me um, when I was in college was, I mean, if you want like GDP growth at whatever rate per year, you could literally just construct something like tanks and dump them into the ocean. And that would be like effectively the same. It's just, you just need material throughput to count. And it, and it's what we're effectively doing with a lot of our material throughput. Anyways, we're just constructing something, using it a couple times and then putting it somewhere else. Um, that really helped me like conceptualize what's actually going on with economic growth. Um, Bill, nuclear question? Well, yeah, it, it indirectly is the nuclear question because again, it's simply a substitute for something we're already doing and we'll continue to do it uh, along the way. If we go back to 1800 and 1 billion people, why do we have 8 billion people now? John just touched on it indirectly. Energy is the means by which we do everything else. So energy is the means by which we produced all the food uh, and infrastructure required to support that growing population. So in the 19th century, public health was improving. So, <clears throat> pardon me, death rates were declining, but we could not have supported all those people without the massive application of energy. So if you plot energy use versus population, there's about a 98% correlation, causal correlation between them. If you plot energy use with the gross or the increase in gross world product, it's the same curve. Mm -hmm. So population growth, the growth of the global economy or any national economy, if you plot countries in terms of their per capita energy use versus per capita GDP, it's, it's almost a straight line. So there's this direct correlation and, and John really put his finger on it. We use energy to date. We use energy to make other stuff, which we mm -hmm. consume. So energy has become the means by which, in fact, it always has been the means by which human beings access every other kind of resource that we need. And the big leap forward, if you can call it that, for humankind was our discovery of how to apply fossil fuel to the digging, 
to the getting of all the other resources needed, needed to grow the human enterprise. So there's no evidence whatsoever. And, and the Jevons effect is, is probably the, the perfect example as John described it. If we simply substitute any other form of energy for fossil fuels, it simply continues this uh, process of scouring the bottom of the earthly barrel for all the other resources needed to keep this system going. Mm -hmm. As I said at the outset, we have used 700 million tons of metals and uh, minerals up until about 2022. At current rates of growth, we'll use the equivalent of everything used to date in the next 30 to 40 years. Mm -hmm. That's on a planet already in overshoot, which is why I think we're headed for a very major correction in terms of population and, and economic activity. We're mm -hmm. destroying, literally undercutting the biophysical basis of our own existence. You know, a racing car can continue to accelerate right up to the point that it runs out of fuel or runs into a cliff. Right. So people aren't really aware of this, particularly right. living in cities. With cities, you know, urbanization has isolated people, yep. both physically and psychologically from the ecosystems that support them. I mean, you're in a very envious position, enviable position, because you're right there uh, being supported by the landscape around you. 99% of people on the planet are no longer in those circumstances. Yep. We just assume we can import everything from everywhere else. Yep. And by the way, there's another dimension of this. I'm saying we can't replace fossil fuels safely. But if we don't replace fossil fuels safely, food supplies plummet material flows plummet. We won't be able to sustain our major cities. How can you possibly sustain a city like Tokyo with 37, 38 people, almost the population of Canada, when it's got like two days supply of food on hand right. at any time and depends on a constant influx of fossil powered marine aircraft and, and truck transportation to sustain that city. Stop all of that and you cannot in Tokyo or New York or Chicago or Toronto. I mean, we're really up a, <laughs> a creek um, of yes. owned by. Okay, but listen, there's, there's actually, there, there, is a, there is actually, this is something that's come up on our podcast quite a bit, which is um, we do think, some of us think that there isn't, there is a potential optimism in um, like biophysical limits in that a lot of people historic historically humans don't really just make civilizational level changes out of the goodness of their heart um, or stop using energy when they have access to it out of the goodness of their heart usually they're forced to do it by some sort of limitation they, they go keep accelerating right until they can't anymore um, but I'm thinking about something like fertilizer shortages um, forcing this like uh, adoption of regenerative practices or more co cover cropping, less tillage, um, you know, like any kind of methods, farming methods that would reduce the need for fertilizer, um, you know, planting on contour dif different, you know, I know a little bit more about agriculture than other aspects of the economy. Um, <clears throat> I wonder whether either of you have any optimism in in like a kind of stair-step forced transition where there's a squeeze on something um, and then people sort of adopt different practices and realize that it's actually better this way. And then there's a, a, a kind of stair-step transition towards something more in balance. So are you, are you saying that uh, it would, <clears throat> the biophysical limit would be experienced uh, by enough of the population 
that the resulting behavior changes would kind of cultivate themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Except, that... for, except for it usually will have uh, like early adopters and then like the middle adopters will probably not be in great situation. You know, the early adopters usually will be fine. Like farmers who see the price of fertilizer is exploding. They make their transition, then they can still do their harvest that year. Those who didn't make that transition, maybe they just get bought up or, you know, go out of business or have no yields kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, this is, I mean, I guess this is the right time to talk about the degrowth movement and why yeah. I'm, I've become such an advocate of it because the, the degrowth movement has done a really good job of saying uh, we, need the, we need some coordinated shrinking of the economy. So rather than getting dragged into a sector-based our sector-based arguments, which would be kind of what you're going for with, with fertilizers or fossil fuel energies, um, a wholesale shrinking of the economy of which GDP is an indicator. So it could be represented as a shrinking of GDP, but, but think of it as a literal shrinking of what we, everything we know as the economy, the mm -hmm. human, the human enterprise is what is the term Bill is using, which is awesome. A shrinking of the human enterprise is required wholesale, and that's not going to be coordinated by individuals um, passing on practices, because as soon as you come up with a more efficient way to use potassium and nitrogen on your fields, well, the, the, the global trade in potassium and nitrogen uh, still continues and you've just dropped, you've taken some demand out of the system, the price drops and, and demand bounces back at a global scale. Uh, so there's no, there's no localized experiencing of limits now that, that, will, that will propagate through in a growth-based economy. You have to have some sort of limit that people know they're gonna come up against so that people get the message that this is not the COVID two-year recession that you can bounce back from and book your Mediterranean cruise while the prices are low. Uh, it's a permanent cap. Mm. And that's what degrowth is doing is saying, we have to start talking about permanent and enforceable caps on resource extraction and use. Mm. Uh, otherwise it won't happen. It's degrowth by design or disaster, but the disaster one is really slow, convoluted, not successful at all and really probably only the wealthiest of the wealthy win. Bill, do you have and any the, thoughts on this? Yeah, the, John said design or disaster. Yeah, and he that, those are the two different, yeah. That's right. But the design is not all that much easier either. I mean, you, you look at your own area. <laughs> totally, right? totally. And grow ecology. I mean, right now we grow corn and other major crops in North America on basically field hydroponics. The yeah. soils have been destroyed. There, yep. There's almost no biotic life left. Right. Uh, so it's fertilizer, fertilizer, and fertilizer. It would take years to rebuild those soils so that productivity could return to anything like the productivity we currently gain using artificial inputs. So the artificial inputs have had a great boost, increased quantity, if not quality, but in the process, they've destroyed the fundamental natural basis of soil ecology. I have read enough of agroecology to understand it would take several years 
to rehabilitate, rehabilitate those soils. So if we want to start doing that, this is where the design comes into it. Right. It requires recognition that we can't continue to rely on fossil fuel-based fertilizers and pesticides to grow our food. Mm. And so we better start right now to rejuvenate, to regenerate the soils that we've destroyed in the process of, of moving toward an industrial scale agriculture. Mm -hmm. and there's another basic limit here. Um, again, I'm an old farmer. Something like 0.2 hectares or half an acre is required to feed the average uh, person today on the planet. Maybe that's the average North American, I can't remember. But the point of the matter is, right now on planet Earth, there's about 0.2 hectares of arable land, that's both cropland and grazing land per capita available. That's all there is. And we in North America have uh, taken most of, uh, much of that to our own credit, right? We, we, the, I shouldn't say North America, the wealthy quarter of the people are exploiting mm -hmm. most of the world's remaining viable resources mm -hmm. to their own ends. We're responsible for something like 75% to 80% of consumption as well as waste production. The remaining three quarters of, of humans are left with the rest. So we're in a very difficult situation. Not only do we have to, as John suggested, degrow the economy, but this has to be done with a, some eyeball on, on equity questions. Mm. So it, it, there's a term used by the Brits in, in referring to carbon emissions called contraction and convergence. We, we have to contract in the wealthy countries to converge with the poorer countries as they come up to a reasonable standard. Mm. But that reasonable standard must be based on the total availability of biocapacity on planet Earth. Mm. So just to go back to our footprint stuff, right now, the average person on Earth needs about 2.6 hectares uh, to produce all of our food and fiber, plus assimilate just our carbon wastes. But there's only 1.7 hectares per capita available on Earth. So we're using a, the planet as if it were about 75% larger than it really is. That's the extent to which we're overloading the waste assimilation capacity and overshooting the regenerative capacity of the remaining ecosystems. So the first step in getting truly sustainable means drawing down or reducing the total scale of the human enterprise so that it is compatible with regenerative and assimilative capacities of the remaining ecosphere. And that automatically means for the average person mm. on Earth, and by the way, you and I are, well, I don't know about you, but certainly John and I in North America are four to five times above average in terms of energy and material consumption, okay? But even the average person has to come down by 75% mm. in order to... Uh, Okay, so um, I have a counter argument. You might not agree, but I do think that there probably is. This is basically the the theme of the podcast is like a like a design and disaster. Um, the disaster component being unavoidable biophysical limitations, and then you know when people meet those limitations, sort of ushering in like, hey, like we've invented agroecology. Here, come on along. You know, it's like we've already figured this out. Um, you know, there's there's all these different methods of doing things. Um, you know, part of what we're doing here, um, you know, we, we were raised in Chicago. We don't really know anything about 
um, environmental, you know, or living with low consumption, but we, we make it like a game, like game theoretic, uh, how little electricity can we use? Um, can we maximize our efficiency in our home? You know, this kind of thing. Um, and, and, and still have a very nice quality of life despite it. And so I think the counter argument to the design or, or focusing only on the design, um, aspect and not the, uh, I guess, experimentation bottom up is that I think a lot of the experimentation bottom up um, will come up with solutions that the design couldn't because it's tested in the field kind of thing. Like I'm just a, you know, I'm like a high consumer, you know, grow, grew up eating, you know, processed cereal. And now I'm here with my chickens in my garden and I'm trying to learn how to eat differently and learn how to, you know, shower with my solar water heater. So that means that I shower in the afternoons instead of in the mornings, you know, this kind of thing where you make an adjustment to your life by living it, like learn by doing, as opposed to, you know, we're going to just impose, you know, some sort of limitations on fertilizer usage top down. And then all the farmers are like struggling because they have no experience with, with it because they haven't experimented with these different systems. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it, uh, it puts you on the tail of a normal distribution though, in terms yeah. of how people think about, yeah. it puts you on one of the tails of a normal distribution in terms of how people are ready to change their current life today to help the environment. Yeah. Um, and so the reason green growth is winning is because it appeals to the people at the cent in the yeah. center of the distribution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and those people have some, the, the, I wanted to, I think counter arguments, we have to constantly counter argue ourselves mm. because this is the only way we're going to sharpen our ability to totally. deal with these complex social technical, technical issues. But the, I'm constantly counter arguing myself the other way. So like you could, it's, it's, um, and, and getting into these debates with friends that work in, you know, I lived in California, I lived in the Bay area, I have plenty of friends in the solar and wind and green transition industry out there but who are really successfully making it happen right now, right? The, the Green New Deal essentially left the station with the Inflation Reduction Act. Yep. Uh, that train left the station. But And they're showing that, yes, coal production in the U.S. is going down. In fact, carbon emissions measured a certain way with a certain system boundary are going down in the United States. It looks like we're ushering in the green transition. So armed with, armed with you can keep your uh, high-mileage vehicle and we can get carbon emissions ratcheted down, which is a true statement for a sliver of society uh, that controls a lot of wealth. Yeah. And then it's a true statement that people who want to live and have that high mileage car would rather have. They would rather have that than the solar. I know the solar shower is great. I like a good solar shower, <laughs> but the normal distribution center the normal distribution does not want yeah, the okay, shower. Okay. Uh, yeah, they don't no, have I, to have it. No, but also if the if the electricity goes out or there's any disruption, I'm gonna be fine. And other people who are reliant on their high tech systems to work and function forever, that's the counter argument where I think you should do both. Um, but okay, I I won't keep belaboring this point. I I have a, like, <laughs> yeah. a related it's an, it's a known it's a known tension point. It's totally, right? totally. Yeah, and it's yeah, important yeah. to keep addressing because you got to try to think about where social change can happen, but also like have a realistic theory of change where to focus your energies. And this is partially why I have this podcast is trying to figure out 
What are people totally. doing to experiment? Top-down solutions, bottom-up solutions, what's working? Um, but uh, on that topic, appropriate technology, we've been um, you know, harping on the negatives of high t- a high-tech future um, on this podcast so far recording, but um, I just mentioned my solar water heater. Um, things like water wheels, like for mills, um, rocket stoves are really interesting, like solar ovens are really cool. Um, the people here in Uruguay are doing ecological septic systems, which is su- super interesting. A lot of people have windmill water pumps still, um, you know, passive solar home construction. Um, and John, I know you wrote this very funny, when we first met, we met at the Score Eye Conference, and you wrote this very funny piece about the clothesline. Um, and you yep. like, analyzed all the energy use of the clothesline or the energy savings. Um, I don't know, maybe you want to just like talk about that. Um, because I think, I think we might, um, be, be passing, um, passing up some potential really important appropriate technologies that could make life very livable and very comfortable, but aren't adopted on like a widespread, you know, consumer scale, but they could be, um, especially like places like Arizona and Florida, like how are you not doing clotheslines and passive solar and water heating? I just... They, they, they could, but it would, if the income, if, if somebody making $50,000 a year decides to go with the clothesline, the savings, a clothesline and biking everywhere, the savings is going to come in the form of time use. So they won't have time to do other consumption activities, mm-hmm. but with an income, a steady income of $50,000 a year, then you move that spending into different categories uh you're going to spend 50k some way somehow in the economy Mm. so so no adoption of of appropriate technology is going to it's it's still a version of jevons paradox still very vulnerable to the jevons paradox as a money um, and resource saving mechanism so if people are really feel constrained and are like, whoa, I got to give up something in this house. I'm going to have to give up my dryer or my dishwasher. And they choose one. And then now you've got people washing by hands. There's a great study I'll share. Neither of them are that great. Washing machines are the only domestic machine that are really worth it, I think. But as soon as people in the world who don't have one can afford one, they buy one. Yeah. So that's an important reality to to remember is like whatever yes maybe it's really not that great and the satisfaction of scrubbing a dish turns out to be very healthy for your mental health but <laughs> that's not how people who've scrubbed dishes for 30 years see it and finally get enough money right i'm not saying that you don't understand that or what i'm, I'm yeah, just like no. handing over the judgment call to them and saying that's the that's the value that gets revealed in growth economies. Mm. Um, yep. So you do need some sort of constraint. But I also think it's really fun to culture bomb uh, engineering settings, right? I did my PhD in civil engineering and I took this sustainable technology course where it was like, give a report on the latest sustainable technology. And people were doing uh, solar roadways and like <laughs> um, vests that generate energy as you walk and vertical takeoff drones that run on solar energy and biofuels for jets and i did the clothesline and yeah, i gave that was a, so like a, I, I gave a 10 minute hilarious. presentation about the design and you know carbon emissions and the materials going into clotheslines uh <laughs> as this like sustainable technology revolution i think there's a really 
fun way to approach some of this, some of the bad, what I call the bad news of degrowth, which is that you can't have as much stuff as you're used to having mm-hmm. stuff, services, and travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have, we have to make light of that fact mm-hmm. sooner well, than later. Bill, uh, thoughts on appropriate technology? I know you mentioned the book Factor Five in your um, presentation um, at the webinar. Maybe you want to describe a little bit some. Um, why you like that book or yeah. well it just shows that if if you chose to do so there's lots of things we could do to improve the situation but factor five uh, which means getting four or five times as much product out of a given input requires complete reform of our tax system to create the incentives for industry uh, to in, introduce these technologies and for people to buy into them uh, it's still subject to the Jevons effect. So you have to, if you're going to make something much more efficient, if you suppose we double the efficiency of something, if we double the price, you're way, you're ahead of the game because there's now no incentive for that to increase the consumption and you've mm-hmm. saved a whole bunch of energy. But you try to run an election campaign on doubling everybody's consumption taxes and you'll see how far that gets. It, it gets to John's point about the middle part of this big distribution and you being way out in the tail. You know, but to support something you said, you're really talking about necessity being the mother of invention. Yes, yes. Uh, people will adapt to circumstance yes. if forced to do so, but they won't adapt to those circumstances in all likelihood if not forced to do so. So as incomes increase, people buy that washing machine. We're all against meat eating. I'm frankly not against meat eating. But the point is, as incomes rise, eat, meat eating increases in lockstep because human beings evolved as uh, you know, omnivores and meat protein is a good way to get the amino acids we need. Mm. So, uh, by the way, all of this becomes meaningless. We've just had a billion people on Earth. It'd be no problem. You could drive any goddamn kind of car you want and, and live in any kind of house with any kind because there's a sufficient capacity in the system to assimilate the waste and to produce the consumption of that many people. You can't do it with 8 billion people. There are no advantages to growing the human population at at the present time. But to get back to one of your points, if we go back to the 50s and 60s in North America, incomes were somewhat less than half of what they are now per capita. Energy use was very much lower Generally speaking, everybody didn't have that washing machine. We still had clotheslines in our backyards. And people were much happier than they are today. So what we have seen is in a, a book called uh, The Loss of Happiness in Market Democracies mm. by Robert T. Lane, which documents the steady decline in people's sense of well-being, of personal happiness, as their incomes have increased since the 1960s. There's another wonderful book called um, The The Spirit Level, Why Equality is Better for Everyone by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, which shows that as incomes have increased in many Western countries, so has income disparity. And it turns out that the inequality, as, as inequality increases in rich countries, happiness declines, public health declines. Mm-hmm. So the United States, for example, among OECD countries, has one of the highest incomes per capita, but because it has the highest inequality, it rates among the lowest in terms of many indicators of population health. Life expectancy has plummeted in the United States in the last decade, 
We've seen increases in drug addiction, alcoholism, marital breakdown, and all kinds of indicators of population health. So even as the country has gotten wealthier, the income gap has increased and it's undermined uh, population health. So a hell of a lot could be done toward improving the situation by getting people to understand that their happiness doesn't depend on their levels of consumption. Mm. It depends on a whole variety of other things. And in fact, it even depends on more equal rates of income taxes. In the US during the Nixon era, the marginal tax rate for the 1% was 91%. Mm. Every dollar you earned above a certain amount, 91% went to the public good. Today it's down to 35 or 36% because every president since then has decreased the tax burden on the wealthiest component of the population, widening the income back gap and making population health a major problem in the United States. So read the, the Spirit Level, terrific book. Yeah, read and the, I, the I would say, and, market, and that is, that is where a lot of our optimism, I feel like, comes in is um, I think a lot of people, or at least the people I'm paying attention to, because and they may, might be, I mean, good point, John, they might be at the tail end of the distribution, but the type of people I'm paying attention to, um, like I, for my PhD, I talked to people who produced food for themselves in and around Chicago, in the city and, and rural areas around Chicago, um, and, and produced at least 50% of their own food. Um, and uh, they came to, they they started doing it um for all various different reasons like they didn't trust corporate food or they don't trust government labeling or you know all this like sort of generalized sense of risk and malaise um frustration with um you know just uh, i think like the general state of their health um the state the the kind of um food that they can get at the store and and the connection with the uh, you know health outcomes that that people are having in the United States um and what they found after being, you know, involved in their own food production was not just like a higher quality food, but like a like a, a happiness increase that doesn't fit on a spreadsheet. Um, you know, people talk to me about like, oh, I was noticing all these different kinds of pollinators in my garden. And, you know, there's this like sort of lived um, ecological ethic. Um, not that that can really necessarily rapidly scale, but it it gives me a point of hope. Like I do think that people are sort of hitting a wall with like meaning and happiness and health, um, some other material limits and 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 possibly all of these things are converging to looking toward alternatives. Um, that's what we're interested anyways. I And also, uh, Bill, I do agree with you at least about the meat consumption because I, I studied this pretty closely here in Uruguay, the the, it's a very big meat producing country. I'm sorry about the noise. Um, and there's a lot of really wonderful regenerative practices, but the country itself is very low population and has lots of land. So like, I do think that we shouldn't also be like prescribing global diets. We could be just prescribing diets that fit appropriately with local consumption and local population. Um, I don't know if you have any follow-up comments on that, either of you. Um, well, I just thought, like to say you or you could constrain the you could constrain the size of the economy and let people figure it out for themselves. Okay, I let think me ask you this. The... Let me ask you, like, literally, just what if you just increased energy costs? I mean, here in Uruguay, uh, electricity is very expensive and gas is very expensive. So that changes how everybody does lives their life. Like everybody makes uh, uh, adjustments because energy is much more expensive. 
Mm -hmm. Well, you would need, I guess, uh, this is something Bill kind of touched on. You would need some sort of, it would have to be, it couldn't just be a tax, a straight tax, because that would be re regressive. Uh, and that's why degrowth is, again, uh, I think holds some promise and optimism because there, there's there's people working kind of under the banner of degrowth or post-growth or post-capitalism, got a lot of different words, uh, working on asking like, okay, true degrowth would be a disaster for the banking industry. You know, we could end up basically stimulating a total failure of the economy. So instead of doing that, uh, which is, a, it's a different kind of human induced disaster, you've really got to think about um, okay, yes, I agree, make energy more efficient, more expensive, but how? It's If it's a straight tax and you collect tax money, now you got to decide what to do with that money. Uh, Bill, on our last call, Bill, you said the best thing to do would be to just burn it, uh, which which I agree, but we need a legal, we need a legal mechanism for doing that. Uh, for literally, it's, and degrowth has a word for it, it's a French word and it's not, never going to catch on, but it's dépense, which means dispensation or kind of like uh, non-productive squandering of excess. Uh, so we need some sort of kind of uh, program of dépense of, of squandering the excess as we ratchet prices up and then uh, having the safeguards so that it's an equitable degrowth and the people who, who need to converge from below do so. Uh, and, and so, yeah, that's, that's my <laughs> thing is like, if we had the, that signal of constraint, like you said, an energy, higher energy price being a good example, people would find those innovations to constrain themselves, but absent that they don't. And I, this is where I'm going to talk in my celluloid quote, because I think uh, in the world of counter arguments, I hear this one too. I hear, well, uh, that's not true that when you transition, there are no, I, I've heard this before. It's not true that there are no energy transitions. We have gotten rid of past technologies before. You don't see horses out on the street and we don't hunt whales anymore. Uh, true and true, right? But what we have done is completely taken away the biophysical basis that whales depend on and we've, you know, it's questionable whether, like, if, if we were still riding horses, we would definitely have a slower society. You know, I'm not sure that that's a great example. There, oh, no, we don't I, have horses anymore. I just want to add, like, there are horses on the street here all the time. Sure, there you my go. Yeah. My, my, my kids have friends that go to school on horseback. It's very But you live in a more a rural area, uh, yeah. ecologically benign society as well. Yeah. <laughs> and it's possible um, to have a good quality of life here. And so, to, I'm sorry. Uh, no, well, let, let, I'll just give my celluloid quote because I think it's just this is an 18. This is from 1878, and Bill and I both keep going back to the 1800s, right? Because it's really important to know where we came from. This is from a celluloid, the celluloid manufacturing company, from an advertising pamphlet in 1878. Thus, as petroleum came to the relief of the whale, has celluloid given the elephant, the tortoise, and the coral insect. Uh, arrested in their native haunts, and it will no longer be necessary to ransack the earth in pursuit of substances which are constantly growing scarcer. So just because we've cultivated a practice, an appropriate technology, or a bio-alternative to something we see as evil today has no real point, no real orientation towards sustainability in and of itself. It has to live in uh economic and political system that's committed to saving the planet. Mm. 
And that has to be at the scale of the international economy. Mm -hmm. Bill, anything else? Oh, <clears throat> there's just so much we, we could talk about. But I know. You, you, you know, John mentioned horses and so on. We have, we've replaced horses, but not biomass energy, which horses were, were part of. It's maintained itself. Great <laughs> point. Great right. point. If you change the metric, it hasn't right. changed at all. So, but look at the horse, you know, in 1920, in the United States, there were about 70 million people. There were 26 million workhorses. They were doing what tractors right. and trucks do today. Now, if you're going to replace or de get rid of fossil fuel use because of climate change, for example, and we don't have adequate replacements in electrical vehicles on either farms or for highway transportation, then you, you could interestingly speculate that we'll need something like 75 million horses to sustain agriculture in the United mm -hmm. States in the next 30, 40 years. So we should be breeding those stock animals right now. This is the, the design approach to mm -hmm. reinvigorating our agriculture. That's a lot of animals to grow because there's only about 6 million horses now in the United States, down from that 25 million or so in the 1920s. But uh, think of this, people talk about all the land being freed up for agriculture. Horses need about two acres of grazing lands each. So if you're gonna have 75 million horses, you need a equivalent to about 150 million acres of, of grazing land to feed those animals. And we can keep extrapolating like this. But the real point is, and John and I have made this several times, this is a hugely complex system. And now it's so completely intertwined and integrated. If you pull a thread here, the whole thing unravels over there. If mm. you pull the thread over here and something gets too tight up there. This, the, the sustainability by design is an incredibly complicated process if you're going to do it without collapsing the entire system. What would you do with the 27 million people in a city like Shanghai or the 37 million people in Tokyo, if suddenly they have to spread out across the landscape. I don't know what Uruguay's population is, but it's, pretty, it's like three and a half million. It's pretty small. Most countries, we, we figure with eco footprint analysis, something like 80% of the world's people now live in countries running ecological deficits. Mm. In other words, they're, they're more dependent on imported goods produced by ecosystems than they have domestic biocapacity. Now, without fossil fuel, that all stops. So suddenly you have millions and millions, indeed billions of people on earth who will be forced, you know, this is a necessity becoming the mother of invention mm -hmm. again, to change their lifestyles. Now, it would be better to do this gradually mm -hmm. in a planned and controlled manner than have it happen chaotically uh, in, in a disorganized, disjuncted, fashion interrupted by things like wars in Europe, which yep. we seem to be having right now, which has the potential of spreading everywhere. Human beings are frankly incapable, it seems, of getting together on a global <laughs> scale to cooperate together to achieve a common purpose. Mm. We're in, we've set up this mental image of, of constant competition for everything from land and resources to fuel, and we go to war over it. That is the big, that's another huge social stumbling block 
to the reasonable design-oriented approach to, to recognizing the current state of the world, to understanding that we can get through this in theory. There's all sorts of technological and social mechanisms by which we could design a future that might work as we reduce the population to a, a sustainable 2 billion, let us say. But we're not going to do that if we don't uh, acknowledge the nature of the problem and the nature of social process. We are engaged in this discussion in a process of what's called social learning. Mm. Social learning is very important, but it takes decades to move a population from one set of beliefs to another set of beliefs. Mm. Historically, social change occurs through disaster or war, yep. catastrophe or revolution. Mm. And unfortunately, if we wait for the global catastrophe or revolution, it may be too late to re-engineer a soft landing after that. Mm. Um, we could go on and on. Um, <clears throat> there's a um, there's an author, I don't know if either of you are aware of, his name's John Michael Greer. He has a, a famous line, collapse now and avoid the rush. Um, <laughs> I think part of what we're, the whole conversation we're trying to have is the doomer part is recognizing the limits, the what we're up against, and then the optimism is where are their points of of agency. Um, while you were talking, Bill, I was thinking, okay, well, what if there's a third option? It's neither design nor disaster. Maybe it's I got to come up with a D word, but maybe it's social learning. Maybe it's example, like you know, degrowth by example. Um, prove a system works and is better, and it, it's simpler and lower consumption, lower energy, but also lovely um lovely way of life um that's that's like a well, one of the one of the options of uh, in the whole toolkit uh but i'll let you guys both have a final statement if you want before we close out you want to go john yes i'll i'll i'll, I'll say that degrowth is your word i'm not a degrowth scholar i'm mostly an environmental engineer i do greenhouse gas footprinting i came to these conclusions by kind of yeah thinking about reality and how reality works but i do think if you talk to a degrowth scholar, they would say that is precisely the definition of degrowth we're trying to cultivate. It's not just a shrinking of units of GDP. It's an actual uh, decolonizing of the imagination mm. of what entails well-being and success for society paired with a responsible, socially just, globally coordinated shrinking of the economy. Yeah. Or the human enterprise. So I would encourage, I think maybe degrowth is your word. And I'll leave that as the last I will, one. I'm not going to even go down that rabbit hole because it's going to take me too long. <laughs> we can have a whole separate conversation about degrowth if you want. We Happy to. Come, Definitely. Come back on. Uh, Bill, final words? Well, there's so many final words, I don't know where to start. But I'm going to pick up on something John said and that you've implied. Human beings are an odd species because we are social constructors of our realities right we make up stories and then we live out of those stories as if they were real in the face of contrary information <laughs> it's so true <laughs> it, it's absolutely true because and by the way it was highly adaptive i'm an evolutionary ecologist if you think back to primitive tribal times there was a real selective advantage to acquiring the social norms and behaviors and beliefs and myths of your tribe. It, it not only conferred on the individual a sense of personal identity, but created group cohesion, which was often necessary in the face of 
adversaries. So the acquisition of a, of a mythic construct by which the tribe lived was really an important thing. Well, our mythic construct is one that has, has been, I suppose, under construction since the Enlightenment, but really yeah. became, uh, it got legs in the post-World War II period. When growth, it wasn't until the late 40s and early 50s that growth actually became noticed and became a platform in, in political parties. And that was the emergence in full flight of, of neoliberal economics, which has at its core the notion that human ingenuity is the only significant resource. Mm. The oil wasn't a resource until somebody figured out how to use it. So that through inventiveness, through technological gains, humans can overcome any conceivable limits uh, to growth imposed by the ecosphere. So this is our story. Mm. So if you believe in economic growth and the capacity of human ingenuity to come over overcome any barriers to that growth, then you're living in a world which literally floats free <clears throat> from the biophysical reality within which it is actually invented. Mm. So, so the whole approach, it seems to me, that we, we need to do is to abandon the beliefs, values, and assumptions and behaviors associated with the mythic construct of, of modern techno-industrial societies and begin to develop and explicitly teach raise generations of people with the kinds of values that recognize that the human system is a subsystem of the ecosphere, that the growth of any subsystem within a macro system destroys the rest of the system, that we have to become uh, functional participants in the rehabilitation of the ecosystems that support us, mm. and on and on and on. In other words, it's almost the antithesis to the current belief that, uh, and values of modern techno-industrial society. Mm -hmm. So let me be really clear. I think we're destroying ourselves. <laughs> that if we stay on the present track, there's almost no hope whatsoever that we will uh, see anything but disaster. On the other hand, we are completely capable if we raise to consciousness the nature of our fix uh, that we can recreate human society in a vision that conforms to the biophysical reality within which we, we find ourselves. And if we don't do that, <laughs> that was such a good that was such a good way to end it. Thank you both so much. This was that was great. This was lovely. Um we'll definitely have to have a good to see um, Bill. yeah have another conversation at some point and pick up on some of these for sure. Things. Thank you guys both.